0: What is going on, everybody? I hope y'all had an amazing week. Look, I don't know about y'all, but at least down here in Oklahoma, d- during the summer, it was it was not fun. It was like living in a sauna, 100 degrees almost every single day. It was absolutely brutal. But hey, uh, the last week, it looks like fall is trying to tiptoe into our environment. And you know what? I am here for it. We had some like 70 degree days with a little breeze and your boy felt good i felt good i felt something in the air it feels like we're about to be getting right into fall and winter which everybody knows no matter what what they say everybody knows that winter time is the best time of year with that being said we got a good one we're continuing to go through ephesians and we are in chapter two if you haven't listened through uh, the previous episodes i highly recommend doing it because Paul is just tracking on one train of thought through the first two chapters here. We're going to discover in the next few chapters uh, how he continues that thought. But at least here in chapter two, Paul is continuing to track on this idea of having the knowledge of God. And we're going to be reading through two verses today. I know we're making progress, baby. We're going through verse 11 and 12. And like we always do, we're going to read through it together and then we will break it down verse by verse. So let's hop straight into it. Paul says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood, of Christ. All right, I lied. It was actually verse 11 through 13. <laughs> but anyway, we're going to break this down verse by verse starting in verse 11. And once again, Paul starts off by saying, "Hey, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands." Now, Paul is is just flowing from his point He previously made a few verses before that we are saved by grace and not by any works. So we're saved by the mercy and grace of God, not by any good deeds or anything that we could have done to merit that grace. And Paul doesn't just drop this fact on those believers and expect them to come away with the correct course of action in light of what they just learned. Rather, what he does is he tells them exactly what their perspective exactly what their response should be to this knowledge and obviously what Paul is immediately talking about is the fact that you know the Gentiles were called the uncircumcised in in kind of a, a negative or kind of putting them as other by those who were circumcised which were the Jews and Paul points out like hey even though you were kind of Called this, you were pointed out as uncircumcised by those who were circumcised. The circumcision was just an act of the flesh. It was something that was done by human hands. It was a work of man. It really has no more, you know, significance other than just what's physically there. It doesn't add any spiritual significance. It doesn't make you more of a believer or um, higher in in the light of God or anything like that. It's just purely something that's physical, which is playing off of what Paul said before, like, hey. You're saved by grace and not by any works, not by anything that you do, um, kind of jabbing at the Jews like, hey, you know, circumcision doesn't save you. It doesn't make you righteous. It doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't do any of that. And so Paul's pointing out that to the Gentiles that you were called this by those who were circumcised. But that in and of itself is not that important because their works were the works of the flesh made by human hands, not by Um, the mercy or or grace of God or anything like that. But what I want to point out is the fact that when Paul points out this fact, when he gives a new revelation here, um, the revelation being that we're saved by grace, not by our own works. What Paul then proceeds to do a little bit in this verse, but in the next few verses that we're going to cover is he informs them what they should do in light of this new information and this is actually a very strong apologetic strategy that I really do think all believers need to be using whenever they're in conversation with people regarding God or theology or morality or anything like that because often we we like to just state the facts and state what we believe is right and we have no regard for what should follow if our claims are actually true For instance if i say to you that drinking until you're blackout drunk is wrong it would be helpful to you if if i followed it up with a course of action that should be taken for instance it's wrong to be blackout drunk therefore you should seek out help in order to find your sobriety so that your children can have a stable and loving parent in the household and, and just this idea of Giving a perspective and a response that your audience should do once you give them a new revelation, or you give them a fact, or you, you give them some truth, that's a very strong thing to do because I see the trap that a lot of believers fall into today and maybe it's because of the political climate and a soundbite culture and being on social media where everything has to just be a punch and a hit and and a quick jab and nothing can be fully fleshed out is that often we just state what we believe is right we state what we believe are the facts and act as though our stating of the facts is going to completely and utterly change how The person responds to what they've just heard. And what the Bible does, and what's so interesting about the Bible, is that it commands what is true. And its commands is always followed by a therefore. A, hey, uh, I told you this, now do this because of what I've told you. And, And I'm not saying literally that there's always a, a word therefore after the Bible's commands, but it's implied. It's an implied response to a command or a principle that is found in God's word. You know, when we look at the example of Christ, Jesus didn't just come up and say to the people, uh, hey, the kingdom of God is at hand. He's the only, you know, I'm the only way to the father and then just up and bounce. If he did, we would have no idea what we are supposed to do with this information. Or at the very least, we would have no idea what could come if we rejected this information. Rather, what Jesus did is he would make these truth claims. He would say the kingdom of God is at hand. He would say that he's the only way to the Father. He would say all these things, but then he would follow them up with therefores. Hey, the kingdom of God is at hand. And because of that, you need to repent. Hey, I'm the only way to the Father. And because of that, you need to follow me. You need to leave your old life behind. You need to believe all of these commands are followed by things that the listener should do. And when we give the listener an idea of what should follow from a truth claim or a revelation, it then puts the ball in their court because they now understand that if I don't do X, I will, re- I will get a certain consequence. But if I do X, I will receive a certain reward. And that's a very powerful apologetic um, strategy that needs to be used in, in conversation. I mean, we see this played out with Jesus once again in Matthew 16, verse 24. He says, if anyone would come after me. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So here Jesus is giving like clear instructions. Hey, you know, if, if you want what I got, if you want these things that I have been preaching and saying are going to come to pass, then you need to take up your cross and follow me. That's the course of action you need to take in light of these truth claims. In Mark chapter 1 verse 14 through 15, says this, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus is saying, hey, uh, l- let me give you a truth claim. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's the truth. That's the fact. That's what Jesus is presenting. He doesn't just say that and then leave. And expect them to figure it out, or expect that they're just going to up and change their life because this guy just said something, and you know now they're just supposed to believe it no, 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 he gave them a truth claim, and then said, "Hey, because of this revelation, you need to repent and believe in the good news there's a therefore that is connected to a truth claim and a command, and like I pointed out earlier uh this idea of there being a therefore and an implied response to a command, this isn't necessarily the point that Paul is trying to teach here. But it's something that I notice Paul doing a lot and the Bible doing a lot in general. And it's something that believers should consistently use when showing the truth in Scripture. Because at that point, let's say we're talking about an issue like abortion. Just simply saying abortion is wrong. That's that's not enough. Although it's true, and that is a truth claim that we're making, the ball really isn't in their court because, okay, it's wrong, but what am I supposed to do about it? That would be like me telling a parent, hey, uh, I think the way that you're raising your kid is wrong, and then just leaving. <laughs> okay, what are they supposed to do with that? Give them... Maybe some guidance, some instruction, and and show them a a path to where they can raise their children better. So, in a in an instance like saying, "Hey, abortion is wrong," maybe we can then follow it up with, and because of that, we should be doing X, Y, and Z. The Bible doesn't make truth claims simply to just state them; it states them so a proper response will follow. It's a sentiment that Paul express, expresses. I believe in Acts twenty two. Where he's sharing the sentiment that, you know, hey, I went out, I preached the gospel, I told these people to repent and believe, I called out their sin, I called them to, you know, make changes in their life and follow Christ. And, you know, they said no, they deny it. But Paul's thought process was, well, I did what I was supposed to do. I gave them all the information that they needed, I told them the process that they can go, and if they decide to reject Christ, the blood is no longer on my hands. Anyways, back to what Paul is saying here in verse 11. So once again, he says, therefore, remember that at one times you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Once again, he's pointing out to the Gentiles that the Jews referred to them as the uncircumcised. It was, it was a, a label that they could put on the Gentiles to immediately let people know like, hey, these are others. They're not a part of our in group. And this is also Paul's way, not just of saying, hey, circumcision is a work of the flesh. It's a work of hands. uh, This is not what gets you saved. But it's also a way of saying, uh, hey, Gentiles, remember that at one point you were not a part of the lineage, the, the ancestry of the Messiah. The Jews had their own way of doing things and identifying. And you Gentiles, you were not a part. Of that group. And he says just as much in verse 12: he says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth or citizenship of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So Paul's reminder to Gentile believers is that before they had faith in Christ, before they were included into the family of God, they were separated. From Christ. And this struck me as interesting because off the top of my head, it seemed like Paul was implying that the Jews before Christ weren't separated from Christ. But that can't be the case because we have plenty of examples where Paul reminds the Jews that they cannot be saved without Christ and that the law is not enough for righteousness. Meaning, if the Jews rejected belief in Christ, then they are living separate from him. So it's clear that Paul isn't trying to imply that only the Gentiles were separated from Christ. Rather, he is reminding them that although they are living a new life filled with spirit and hope, that they were at one point living just like Paul describes at the beginning of chapter 2. They were living in death. They were living in sin and transgression. They were seen as direct enemies of God because they were following the powers of Satan. And therefore, because of that, they were separated from Christ. But to add on to that, Paul makes sure to remind them and make sure that they understand that they were also alienated and excluded from the citizenship of of Israel. While also at the same time being strangers to the covenantal promise that the Jews were able to hold on to. And to add to this unfortunate cherry on top of this cake that Paul is making right now, they also lived with no ultimate hope and they lived without God. All of these things that every human lacks apart from Christ can be remedied and fully satisfied in Christ. So later in this chapter, Paul's going to explain how this happens, but let's break it down here real quick. So just to remind you, those who are separated from Christ, you, me, if we're separated from Christ, we're alienated from the citizenship of Israel, the citizenship of God's people. We are strangers to his promise. We have no ultimate hope. And we are without God. But look look what happens when we are not separated from Christ. Philippians 3.20 But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Paul tells us in Philippians that when we're not separated from Christ, we are no longer alienated from the citizenship of God's chosen people. What about 2 Peter 1, verse 2 through 4? Peter tells us that God has granted us his precious and very great promises when we are in Christ. So because of this, when we're in Christ, we are no longer strangers to the promises that God has for his people. What about 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3? He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So here, when we're in Christ and we're not separated from Christ, we no longer live without an ultimate hope because we are found in Christ. And here in Matthew chapter one, verse 23 says, Behold, the version shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So when we are in Christ and we're not separated from him, we no longer live without God in this world because Christ is literally God who is with us. Now, now a quick recap. All of these things that Paul says that those who are separated from Christ are missing out on, citizenship, being seen as God's people, being strangers to the promise of God, having no hope in the world, and being without God in the world. We just went over various verses that show that when we are in Christ, we have citizenship in God's kingdom. We are no longer strangers to the promise that god has for his people we no longer live without an ultimate hope and we no longer live without god in the world all of these things that paul points out are remedied when we are in christ in what was the catalyst for the change of all of this happening what's the catalyst for being separated from christ to all of a sudden Being found in Christ. It was a knowledge of who Christ is. And I know I probably sound like a broken record these last four or five episodes because I continue to say that everything that Paul is laying out in Ephesians from chapter one into chapter two, it all hinges on his prayer that the believers would have a knowledge of God. And I promise you, I'm not crazy, but every single brick on this road that Paul is paving, it all starts with a knowledge of God. Paul makes it clear that without this knowledge, without this wisdom, we end up living a life full of sin and transgression, and we end up following the powers of Satan and live to only fulfill our barbaric desires. And Paul here is reminding the Gentile believers of this very same thing. That when they were separated from Christ, they had no knowledge of who the Messiah was, of who the Messiah is. They were living a life outside of God's chosen people with no hope and no access to God's promises. Barnes says it best in his commentary on Ephesians. And this is a quote from his direct commentary pointing out chapter 12 or sorry, chapter 2, verse 12 here. He says, quote, in regards to Paul saying that they were separated from Christ, quote, You were without the knowledge of the Messiah. You had not heard of him. Of course you had not embraced him. You were living without any of the hopes and consolations which you now have. From having embraced him, the object of the apostle is to remind them of the deplorable condition in which they were by nature. And nothing would better express it by then to say that they were without Christ or that they had no knowledge of a savior. They knew of no atonement for sin. They had no assurance of pardon. They had no well-founded hope of eternal life. They were in a state of darkness and condemnation from which nothing but a knowledge of Christ could deliver them, end quote. So even Barnes here is picking up on what Paul is hinging all of this on, which is a knowledge Of Christ, they were separated from Christ. And the reason why they were separated from Christ is because they didn't know about Him. They had no knowledge of a coming Messiah. I mean, how could they? They're Gentile believers that are not a part of the Jewish commonwealth. They're not a part of the Jewish community. They're not a part of their teachings. They're not a part of their culture. The the Messiah would have been known by the Jews. That's why it's all the more. Egregious, that Jesus was tortured and betrayed by his very own people because the Jews in their Hebrew Bible over and over and over had prophecies and a hope towards a coming Messiah that would be their king and that would save them. And they completely missed it. Although they had the knowledge that this was going to happen, they completely missed it. That is why it's so far worse that Jesus came to his own people and they didn't even recognize him. But for the Gentiles, they had no knowledge of a Messiah. This wasn't in any of their scriptures. They were off worshiping the various pagan gods that you know they worshipped. But this is why it's saying that they were separated from Christ because they had absolutely no knowledge. So as Paul states, hey, you had no knowledge. And because of that, you had no you had no hope. You lived without God. You did not have any access to the promise you were living in this state of sin and transgression simply because you were not a part of God's chosen people and you were not given these prophecies and these teachings. And I know I've been harping on this knowledge of God thing so much, and I'm doing that because simply put it is absolutely essential for following christ you have to have knowledge of who christ is and what he has done for you and for some this level of knowledge may be easier to obtain or receive or cope with than others but regardless it is absolutely necessary To knowing the hope that you are to have, it is necessary. To knowing your status as God's child, it is necessary to avoid being an enemy of God, to have the knowledge of who God is. And we'll finish with verse 13. Paul says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul just got done reminding the Gentiles of how sad and dark their lives were before they knew Christ. They had no hope. They lived without God. They were seen as outsiders to God's kingdom. But now, but now in Christ, all of that changes. You're no longer far off because you were brought near by the blood of Christ. And I like that Paul slips that in. Paul slips in the reason why you are brought near. It's not because of your own works. It's not because of your own good deeds. It's not because of your your worthiness of being forgiven. It is simply and purely because of the blood of Jesus Christ.